Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. Let's just dive right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about BCSDA and what do, in the context of that, what do we make of COP27? The Business Council for Sustainable Development Australia is a 30-year-old organisation that is championing the role of the sustainable development agenda with business. And in that regard, the work of BCSD Australia in the the last couple of weeks uh, at Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27, the 27th version of this climate change negotiation, can you believe it, was uh, several fold. The first was very much to keep um, the negotiators, the delegations, the parties um, true, true to the mission of the um, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Agenda, which is very much to um, ensure that no one is left behind, that we have a robust plan for mitigation and adaptation right across the planet, and that every party makes their contribution to that particular enterprise, conscious that um, and a lot of people don't realise this, that um, you and I, as so-called non-parties or observers to all of this, don't actually get a technical say in what goes on at these um, these jamborees, these climate change fests that happened every year. And yet the amount of influence that we have has grown exponentially, I think, uh, over the last 20-odd years by just the sheer force of presence at the COP, and, and I'll come to the, the numbers that were there, but also I think the um, way in which countries, through their delegations, draw upon, dragoon into, and ask um, for views of the, the parties, the civil society, the private sector, the research um, and university institutes that go. It very much is that... Um, boot camp conversation that seems to happen every year where the delegations attend, but they bring along absolutely everybody to make sure that they're, they're listening to, hopefully then acting on what mm-hmm. all of those particular voices have to say about what we need to do to decarbonise out into 2050 and ideally um, in a shorter period of time than that. So with that as the foundation, Andrew, what do we make of COP27? Um, and how do, you, how do you feel about the progress made toward that greater goal? 27 gives you a hint about how many times the world has come together on this particular conversation. Yep. And as one commentator noted at the COP, God forbid that we'd be doing this at COP50 because, joke aside, um, it probably says a lot about humanity if we get to that and we mm-hmm. haven't solved this. If mm-hmm. you think about it in that way, what have we achieved by 27 and what do we hope to achieve is probably the way to look at it. Mm-hmm. 27 was an interesting one because it was never expected to be an important one. And I don't mean that in any pejorative sense. It, it, it's mm. all, They're all important in their own way. But it wasn't a landmark COP like um, Glasgow certainly was, and that was last mm-hmm. year. And then, of course, as you and I know, the Paris Agreement of 2015 through the Paris COP, COP21 was considered to be one of the the seminal, the the groundbreaking uh, climate change negotiations because they they achieved certain um, 
things on the road to decarbonisation. This one was never expected to do any of that. And yet, in one sense, it did. Jumped mm. right out of the box and had this very difficult conversation, which, um, as an Egypt, I think it was the Egyptian presidency said, had been burbling along for 27 years, almost 30 years, between the developed north and the, um, you know, the developing south, if you want to use stereotypes. But um, mm. the conversation was very much around, well, uh, from a developing world perspective, we're not responsible for this and yet we're not seeing the benefits of technology transfer. We're not seeing the benefits of finance becoming available for use by developing countries to adapt, let alone mitigate, the, cha the challenges of climate change. Um, it all seems to be happening in the north uh, or in the developed world. And uh, lo and behold, we had this agreement um, uh, called the Loss and Damage um, mm. Fund, which has been set up. Yes, there's a lot to do. The ink isn't dry on the agreement. We haven't figured out how it's going to be done in any comprehensive way. But the simple fact that we decided to do that comes as quite a surprise when you learn that the concept, let alone the discussion, let alone the agenda item of loss and damage, wasn't actually on this COP on the 6th of November. So mm -hmm. between the 6th of November and the 18th of November, we had quite a lot happen. The other is that there were um, efforts and in some cases successes around certain areas of what's called the programs of work. So on Article 6, which is market mechanisms, there was movement. In other words, that people did their homework, they submitted it, it was checked, and everybody was um, in, a, in accordance with what they wanted to see it done. Mm. It, it's a bit, bit of a shame, though, that we didn't progress a conversation about ambition, but mm. in, the, in the, the binary way in which these things happen, that's going to be a conversation for next year. It's all about the mm -hmm. global stock take. We're going to see where we're up to and make some hard decisions about the next, the next steps. It's interesting you'd point to to loss and damage, obviously. Um, but yet, yeah, one would have expected under the normal momentum of a COP that that would have been the pinnacle announcement at the end. And in this one, they jumped straight into it with sort of the the foundation mm. for that discussion. Um, and I think, you know, I tend to be a half glass full person, which may make me naive. But the fact that there weren't any steps backward, but sort of these incremental steps forward on how we go about doing some of these things around Article Six, around you know the transition of ITMOs and issues like that. That's that in-between work that happens. There was um, back, what was it, the end of week one, there was a concern mm. that there was going to be this backsliding around the the language that's going to be used mm. in the final text on um, keeping what's called 1.5 alive. And mm. um, I think Minister Bowen said it best, which was, well, if that's not what we're here for, what are we here for? And I think that that was quite a telling comment that was made publicly and then released publicly that, you know, if, if we aren't moving forward on this, then why do we have this construct that we come together to try to move forward? So mm -hmm. it was interesting. It, it stayed in the, the final text, which is pleasing to see. And as I remarked in one of my reports back to our members, you know, I always thought that the price of peace was eternal vigilance. Well, apparently, the price of climate change action is always eternal vigilance as well. 
I think that's that's really apt, and that sort of feeds into the next question I wanted to ask you, that given this base at COP27, how does this then feed into COP15, uh, part two of the biodiversity COP at, at Montreal, yeah. besides allowing you to do the trans-global uh, trip around the world? <laughs> how do we then move along? <laughs> well, apart from getting colds all the way along the way, which are not COVID, mm. by the way, people, in case my wife is listening, um, <laughs> it's interesting because it should never have happened this way. Just let's just think about the counterfactual for a moment. Um, we should have done and had done and dusted in the what's called the Paris Agreement moment for nature or biodiversity uh, back in two thousand and twenty. COP fifteen mm-hmm. should have happened two years ago, and yet we're talking about an agreement which we hope will come about in about two and a half weeks' time that is very much teetering on the edge of it. it's not going to happen. And uh, into that, we have this conference, which is, as we just discussed, not a seminal conference, not a, not a, not a groundbreaking or an earth-shattering climate change conference, and yet it had such an important ripple effect going mm. into the negotiations for Montreal, to the extent that um, a number of us were invited to a conversation, uh, a roundtable conversation that was headlined by people like um, Mary Robinson, Nigel Topping from the high-level um, climate change ambition, talking about the, the need for a bridge between the two conferences and, more importantly, the two subject matters. And so, as was put by, I think, I don't, I can't remember the, the actual um, commentator, but they said that you can't have success around climate change if you don't have um, a solid underpinning of understanding around how you're going to address biodiversity because climate change is impacted and dependent upon um, mm-hmm. a, a nature in harmony with one another. And we've clearly put both of them out of their, um, their harmonious cycle at the moment. So the, the concern is that um, there'll be negotiation exhaustion, not that the, the parties necessarily have the same um, negotiators at each one, but you've just got this um, exhaustion of the work that goes into something like these annual conferences multiplied by the challenge of biodiversity coming about in a cycle that should never have happened with the weighted expectation of this particular conference the belief is that it has to succeed. We've seen this before, and this is the, the concern I have, that we, we, we come into this thinking we have to make this work. And what happens is that um, others don't necessarily align with that view, and so it does fall over at the last moment. Now, what's positive about this is that the um, so-called clean text of a number of the targets Mm-hmm. Um, that are going into the climate, uh, into the biodiversity negotiations, pardon me, they're looking a lot healthier than they were, but it's by no means certain that we're going to see a, um, a Paris Agreement moment uh, in Montreal by the 18th of December. But I guess the uh, the dread whisper of Copenhagen hangs over all of this. Uh... Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, and many uh, others beside. Yes, yeah, being uh, what was that? Twenty fifteen was that? That was the one before Paris, twenty fourteen. Um, it was a. Uh, it's widely considered one of the least for for our listeners. It's considered one of the least use uh, least successful cops. Um, in sort I think of the I think it was COP fifteen in twenty COP fifteen. Thank you. Yes. That's correct because it was it was yes. Kevin Rudd when he was still prime minister, and it was freezing. 
Yeah. So a lot, lot of similarities. Yeah. Yes. Got yeah. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, given that that is this as the floor, the uh, the ceiling is a bit more hopeful. Um, Andrew, mm. you mentioned earlier in in our talk that you know um, BCSDA or Business Council of Sustainable Development Australia is there as an observer, um, and that in that you know as an NGO you don't have an official role in negotiations. But so why are you at COP? And how do you represent the interests of your membership um, as an observer to these to these conferences of parties? The, the, the United Nations does allow the observers to attend, and mm. they're very much there, encouraging, cajoling, talking to, um, in some cases, um, getting annoyed with uh, the delegations. So a good, very good example is um, this year's COP27 and the presence of the Australian government, which for those of you who don't have the unique um, experience of going to one of these things this year, Australia was very much present, and I mean physically present, observant at this particular COP. We could see Australia being present at this particular COP. Now, that's quite unusual um, in the past. And what BCSD does is that we, we were talking to Minister Bowen and Minister um, McAllister and even Minister Conroy in the first week around what we thought were the important deal breakers around ambition, around action and accountability, not just for government, but also for other parties. So our, mm-hmm. ours is very much around um, if we expect others to do things, that we have to bring something to the table in relation to Uh, particularly accountability and transparency. And that was an interesting observation around this COP for business, uh, the COP27 for business, that there was very much a call for accountability by business if it's Mm -hmm. going to be more ambitious. And so we, um, with our our brethren, our fellow fellow BCSDs, the World Business Council, we we actually launched um, for the first time a uh, fairly significant report around what we saw as the business role in accountability, action and um, ambition and laid out some really interesting um, sectoral ambition um, targets that we thought were possible around energy, um, electricity, uh, industrial, manufacturing, uh, resources and mining, um, built environment. So it's also an opportunity to bring a platform of conversation around where particular parties, in this case the private sector, believe they can play an important role in what's called the ambition loop. In other words, what you are bringing to the table helps others to then also bring something to the table. And then mm-hmm. the, the sheer fact that you're negotiating or you're, you're networking with so many people, conscious that this was a cop that said it was going to have 52,000 people, I think it ended up having about 46,000. That's an enormous number of people coming to one mm. event around climate change mm. and they're not all they're not all policy people they're uh, business people they're civil society they're financiers and so the, the brutal reality that somebody said well this has turned into a trade fair and i said and what's the problem with that do, do <laughs> we want to accelerate that to you yeah. do we want to accelerate action on this or not and business and finance need to bring their credit cards and their innovation and their enterprise to see this solved. And so Mm. I think for business, it was one of the best COPs. And this is what be interesting about the biodiversity COP because the same private sector signal has been sent around this, uh, the the upcoming COP, that there's going to be a big business presence saying we want to be held accountable for actions around um, reporting on biodiversity. 
But we expect governments to move forward on an on a high ambition um, program so that we see tangible outcomes within our lifetime. And I think that's what we're going to see. And this is certainly what we're prosecuting in both COPs this year. Will Australia and our Pacific Island neighbours host a COP? Um, I've noticed it's gone out from being COP29 to COP31. Uh, does that make it uh, an easier sell or a harder sell? Uh, I think it's an easier sell. And I think the answer is if we don't get it, we'll be bitterly disappointed. I think it, there's good odds. I think you can safely put odds, as Australians do, on all matters betting, that we're going to achieve COP31. Conscious that we are all um, wanting to see that as a Pacific COP, not an Australian mm. COP, and that mm. we want to have a comprehensive conversation of the importance of Indigenous peoples right across the Pacific um, into that particular COP, which would be, yeah, 2026. So fingers, mm -hmm. not fingers crossed, I think we're, we're, um, we've moved beyond that and there'll be a lot of work to be done and a lot of opportunity for business and for civil society in Australia to see what the importance mm -hmm. of these negotiations represents to humanity, basically. Would this be, remind me, Andrew, would this be the first sort of regional COP if, if this was done this way? Well, remember that um, Fiji actually hosted a COP, and I can't remember what number yeah. it is, which is terrible, but our, but our friends right. Germany actually uh, physically hosted the COP in Bonn. But as to a Pacific mm. COP or, an, or a, in one sense an Asia-Pacific COP, yes, my mm. recollection is that this would definitely be the first. It's an unusual opportunity, particularly Australia's role as regional neighbour, as a, a regional economy with its Pacific neighbours to uh, put a new spin on the approach. Very much so. And, and, and when you think about yeah. what um, has been going on with the um, introduction of the Inflation Reduction Act in America, um, the European mm. Union and the acceleration of Fit for 55, you've got a lot mm. of countries that are looking for investment and the significance of a COP draws the, the, the world's attention to the opportunity for investment in this part of the world. And I think that's one mm. of the reasons why we want to host this COP. We want to make sure that there are mitigation opportunities and particularly adaptation um, challenges that are addressed through um, uh, appropriate, robust, but creative investment in this particular region to help um, our Pacific brethren, but also to accelerate our own actions on climate um, climate change as we move towards, we hope, a more ambitious um, NDC but for 2035. All right. Well, Andrew Peterson of the Business Council of Sustainable Development Australia, uh, will you be doing Good Day Montreal, the uh, the the Australian evening uh, Montreal morning uh, recap of the action? Well, Thank you, Dorothy Dixon, for that question. Uh, the, answer is, <laughs> the answer is yes, but we flip it this time. So Australia gets the benefit of it being done at nine o'clock and mm -hmm. I will be um, coming to you every afternoon from live from Montreal at 5 p.m. So if oh, you beautiful. haven't yet registered, you can do so via our website and we look forward to some really interesting commentators, both from Australia and also internationally, giving us their views on what's happening at the Nature Cop. So looking forward to it. Well, I will make sure to drop the link into our show notes so our listeners can uh, come and watch you. Uh, it is a bit of a Dorothy Dixer, but I have to say, Andrew, uh, it's not only informative, it's highly entertaining. Um, and so listeners... <laughs> 
do sign up for G'day Montreal, where Andrew uh, invites uh, a really wide range of experts, occasionally me, but uh, a wide range of experts to give <laughs> insights uh, to sort of inform those of us left here in Australia as to what's been going on um, and how we can integrate the day's action into what we do. So I strongly recommend it. Thank you much. Pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allenbackis. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.